I'm in a new docu-series called Seasons with Justin Bieber. I've been his doctor for five years. He came into my office one day and this is this was the lever moment. He said, I get it. My brain can have problems just like my heart can have problems. And if you told me I had heart disease, I would do everything you said. It wasn't a mental illness that shamed him that he had to hide from. It was a brain health issue. And now he's doing everything he can to make his brain better. performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is about drummers. It turns out drummers' brains can do impossible things. People who play drums regularly differ mentally from people who don't. And we've known for a long time that if you play a musical instrument, it could change your brain, but no one ever looked at drummers and how they're different. So leave it to German researchers who always look at the weird stuff, and they found that drummers who play regularly have fewer but thicker fibers between two parts of the brain. This was published in Brain and Behavior, a medical journal, and they found that the motor brain areas of regular drummers are organized way more efficiently than they are for you and me. They looked at MRI imaging of 20 professional drummers with 17 years of experience and more than 10 hours a week of practice. Now, if you listen to... The podcast with Eric Kandel, uh, the Nobel Prize winner who uh, discovered and documented neuroplasticity, uh, the one thing he probably said more than anything else in the whole interview was practice, practice, practice. So here we've got 20 people who took that advice and for 20 years practiced 10 hours a week. And the front part of the brain responsible for motor planning was very different. And this allowed the drummers to exchange information between those two parts of the brain as compared to a control group. And most people like me can only perform fine motor tasks with one hand and have a really hard time playing different rhythms with both hands at the same time, and drummers can do impossible things. Now, I experienced this firsthand because uh, before Third Eye Blind (laughs) opened uh, a few years ago, they invited me to come and make uh, some coffee for them. Uh, Thank you, Stephen Jenkins. And I actually got to go up on stage and like sitting behind the drums, and I pick up the drumsticks to take a picture, and I have no drumming skills whatsoever, and uh, so then all of a sudden, like, you know, one of the guys, and I was like, all right, like, let's play down a beat. And I'm like, I can't even move both drumsticks simultaneously. I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, and then I allowed my automatic negative thoughts, by the way, that's a total clue to who I'm going to interview in a minute. Uh, I I, uh, I just allowed those, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing here. I, I don't think I can actually hit uh, left and right hand with a beat. And I'm like, how about we just do the photo? So I still regret I never even got like one drum beat uh, with the cool guys in Third Eye Blind. Uh, That was not meant to be a cool fact of the day, but now you're wondering, who's it going to be? If you guessed, based on that amazing cool fact of the day, that I was going to be talking uh, with some famous rock and roll guys, uh, you were wrong, although um, that is a reminder for me that I really um, owe Stephen a call. Instead automatic negative thoughts. Who would that be? Someone who's been on the show before, someone who's a dear friend, and someone who actually woke me up to the field of biohacking back before it had a name and before it became a movement by pointing out, Dave, you have a serious hardware problem in your brain. 
I'm talking about none other than Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Amen, welcome to the show. Dave, what a joy to be with you again. Now, for people who have not come across your work and haven't heard any of the several times you've been on the show, um, you are uh, one of the the most popular uh, brain guys in the world right now, I would say. Um, you've written a bunch of books about the brain and your your first book or one of your first books, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, uh, led me to get a SPECT scan, which is a, an imaging technique you pioneered back when I was in business school. And I thought, man, maybe I'm just weak. Maybe I'm not trying hard enough. And when I saw it, it was like, oh, I have a hardware problem. And I went out and I fixed my brain. And that was what led me down much of this path. And I publicly thank you for that before. But for people who don't understand that, You've written 70 professional articles, 30 books, and uh, you've got a new book coming coming out right now, which is why I'm interviewing you again. And I've just got to say, there is no one I've ever interacted with on the brain side of things. And I've talked to some very powerful brain guys who has the level and depth and just quantity of clinical experience fixing the hard stuff as you. So thank you for being back on the show. Well, I'm a huge fan of yours, and I'm just grateful that we have this time together to talk. Um, and the new book, The End of Mental Illness, is just out of everything I've written, it's the most important book because what's happening in this country is going the wrong way, is we actually have the wrong paradigm that mental illness, I hate that term, because they're brain health issues. And just like you said, when you get your brain right, yeah. well, then your mind follows. And it doesn't go in the opposite direction. You can't talk yourself. You know, if we think about your first scan, you, you, you could go to therapy forever. But if you don't fix the hardware, the software programming will never work. It, it's really true. People have Lyme disease. They have toxic mold, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. By the way, I've been diagnosed with all those. <laughs> when, when that's going on, you just don't have the willpower to do the hard emotional work of you know, fixing your your stuff. So then you say, oh, I'm stuck or I have a mental illness. So I have, I've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And you are the first person and the loudest person with the most data who just said, look, it's not that. It's not a behavior problem. You know, it, it is what is going on uh, in the cells. It's what's going on in the connectivity of the cells. And like I said, it's a brain health problem, not a mood disorder. And um, that said, you start out your book by saying, why I hate the term mental illness and you should too. Now, isn't hate and should, aren't those automatic negative thought trigger words? Didn't you just use two of those in one sentence? Well, hate's not. I mean, hate's <laughs> a powerful emotion. And, you know, when I was growing up, my dad's favorite word was bullshit. <laughs> I must have heard it tens of thousands of times. His second favorite word was no. So it was bullshit, no. And as I've been a psychiatrist now for 40 years, uh, which is just crazy, but it's time somebody called bullshit on what is happening to mental health care treatment. So you remember when Sandy Hook happened and Adam Lanza, the autistic boy, went to the elementary school and murdered all those children. Yeah. And President Obama came on national television and he said, 
we need more money for mental health care. And in my head, I went, all of these school shooters have had mental health care. Most of them were, in (laughs) fact, on medication. If we do more of what we're doing, we're going to get more of what we have, which is an escalating incidence of anxiety, depression, suicide, ADHD. The model is broken. And I think it's just so important to say we need a new model. Get your brain right and your mind will follow. But making diagnoses based on symptom clusters with no biological data. So what happened to you? So you have chronic fatigue, you have fibromyalgia, you have depression, you have anxiety, you have ADHD, and nobody's looking at your brain and realizing you're being poisoned. And (laughs) it's just not rational to make diagnoses with no biological data. What other medical specialists do that? None. And um, so I just thought I'd just take take it on um, and go, we need to end mental illness. Call them what they really are, brain health issues that steal your mind. Get your brain right. Your mind follows. It, it is uh, fundamental to, to biohacking. You know, if you wanted to exceed in how you perform, uh, get make sure you can make energy in your brain. Make sure that your brain itself works, and then figure out what to think with your now functioning brain. And it it's interesting because um, part of the the issue here it, it goes back to the same pattern we've had with obesity. So when I weigh three hundred pounds, okay, you look in the mirror and you feel shame, and then people judge you. Oh, like, oh look at that! You know that guy probably eats you know nachos covered in Snickers bars and, you know, what whatever story they tell themselves. And for the record, no, I never did try that. But now that I thought of it. Uh, anyway, uh, they, uh, so, so and you have this like really negative thing and you, know, you look in the mirror, you look on the scale and you, you actually kind of don't like yourself and you get down on yourself. And then you can say, well, I'm trying to eat right. I'm, I'm working out. And then, you know, eventually it's like, oh, you got diabetes. In in my case, I had pre-diabetes and they said, oh, you're at high risk of stroke and heart attack, but you're not even 30. And at that point, no one's going to judge you for those things. Like, oh, you know, that happens as we get old and all that stuff, but you get shamed for being fat. But now that 70% of people are obese, we've kind of lost all that. We're like, oh, it is a health problem. It's happening to all of us or something wrong. Like, let's all work on it. And so the idea that you want to lose weight and, and you're doing something about it is now seen as moral. And, and it's seen as, as something that, that's aspirational. Like, I'm going to get fit. Well, it feels like that same kind of shame that I experienced as you know a 20-year-old uh, around being obese. I felt the same shame when it came to my brain. I'm like, oh man, maybe, maybe I'm not good enough. You know, asking for help about my brain, you know, going and saying, hey, can I get tested for ADD? Like, I think I need more time on a test. Like, I, I can't pay attention. I, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like I'm smart, except now I feel like I'm dumb. Uh, for me to do that when I was 30, uh, and I'm like at this, you know, Ivy League business school, it was really, uh, it was really like a shameful thing. Like, I don't want to tell people, I don't, I don't want people to know about it. Why does this, uh, we're, we're going to call it brain health or what was formerly known as mental illness, why does it still have a shame component to it like obesity did? Because we think it's your fault. We think if you're not trying hard enough. And when I first started looking 
at the brain, especially for my patients who have ADD, what I found, if people come to the clinic, they generally get two scans, one at rest, one with concentration. And what we see in our ADD group is that when they try to concentrate their three areas of the brain, their prefrontal cortex, basal ganglia, and cerebellum all drop in activity. What does that mean? It means the harder they try, the worse it gets. And <laughs> that it's it's as if your brain betrays you. So like you put your foot on the gas pedal to go faster and your car actually goes slower. And just knowing that takes away the shame and guilt. And it's like, well, help me. And we have lots of help for that. Um, they get better and then they feel good. So I always tell people having ADD is, you know, people with ADD aren't dumb, crazy, or stupid. They're, it's like people who need glasses, right? People who need glasses aren't dumb, crazy, or stupid. Their eyeballs are shaped funny and glasses help them focus. People who have ADD aren't dumb, crazy, or stupid. When they try to concentrate, their brain betrays them and getting it treated just helps them focus. It begins to take away the shame of try harder. Like when I was in school and I, if I wasn't doing well, my dad would tell me to try harder and I'd try harder and it worked. But what about <laughs> all the people where they try harder? And Dave, what happens is they get demoralized. Oh, it happened to me. They, yeah. they become hopeless. Martin Seligman actually called it learned helplessness. I try and it doesn't work. I try and it doesn't work. I try and it doesn't work. And then I say to hell with it. And I stop trying because I have no belief it'll make a difference. And that's what happens to way too many people. And they're not going, I can't tell you how many times I heard I'm not going to go see a psychiatrist because I'm not crazy. And, you know, back to my dad, it's when I told him I was going to be a psychiatrist in 1979, he asked me why I didn't want to be a real doctor, why I wanted to be a <laughs> nut doctor and hang out with nuts all day long. And my dad didn't get father of the year award. But 40 <laughs> years later, I sort of understand where he was coming from because we we, and we have psychiatrists, we've done it to ourselves, that what other profession makes diagnoses based on symptom clusters with no biological information? And that's where the stigma comes from. Nobody believes it's really biological unless you look. So I'm in a new docu-series with Justin Bieber. Justin has a new YouTube series called Seasons, and he came out publicly for the first time. I've been his doctor for five years, and thank God he got married to Haley because Haley makes him follow through on his <laughs> appointments. Uh, so a good woman can make a big difference. But he came into my office one day and this is this was the lever moment. He said, I get it. My brain can have problems just like my heart can have problems. And if you told me I had heart disease, I would do everything you said. He said, I'm now in. It wasn't Beautiful. a Beautiful. mental illness that shamed him that he had to hide from. It was a brain health issue and now he's doing everything he can to make his brain better. And that's why he's better. I remember very much when I 
I was doing this business school thing, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to quote, try really hard. And frankly, I was always a top student, but I didn't try hard because the classes were really stupidly easy <laughs> until I went to college and got my ass handed to me. So I, I'm now getting my MBA. I, I'm older, I'm wiser. I'm like, all right, I, I've had a good career so far. I, I, I've got this. And I would get 100% on the first question on a test, 70% on the second question, and then third question, 20%. And then the fourth question, I couldn't read my writing. And it was like a linear decline. No matter, I'm like, oh, I'm so, I've got this test. I know everything. I studied. I, you know, I stayed up. I did everything. And, and it was just programmatic. And it was it, just like you said, that learned helplessness. Like, it doesn't matter what I do. Like, I, I just fail these tests and I just don't know. And it was that point where, like, you know, something has to be wrong with me. Like, maybe I'm dumb, maybe I'm weak, uh, but I don't know how to try any harder. And that was when I read uh, Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. And I was like, I think I'll get an appointment. And, and I went in uh, and just like you described, uh, as soon as I tried to pay attention, those three parts of my brain would just shut down. Like, oh, thank God. And I remember when I, I had that first report, I actually relaxed. I was like, oh, <laughs> like, I'm not crazy. Just like you're describing. I mean, it, it's, it's such a textbook description, but it's exactly what I experienced. So I've never thought of myself as having had a mental illness. In fact, I've always thought of myself as pretty much uh, kicking ass, uh, but also not having a brain that works like, uh, like muggles. Um, and um, muggles could be a pejorative term or it, it could be uh, you know, like, like normal brains. Um, some of the things that are labeled as mental illnesses that are, are brain problems, are, are some of them actually tied with higher performance in some things and lower performance in others? Like are there advantages to ADD or autism or you know, being more prone to anxiety? Like is there a flip side that's, that's a gift? Well, you know, in the book, I talk about 16 brain types and I talk about, well, what's a benefit of, so type two is our spontaneous group. It's our ADD group. And they tend to be more spontaneous, which can really be positive, more creative. They um, don't like to play in the sandbox. So they're outside of the sandbox, which we need those people because they disrupt society. But my experience is when you treat them effectively, um, they don't want to play in the sandbox, but they get stuff done. Yeah. And so I had this great trucker I saw who had terrible ADD. And I walked into the waiting room and I was watching him draw and it was beautiful. Um, and he's like, well, I don't want to lose my talent. I said, well, you'll actually start be able to finish your paintings, and you'll probably make a lot more money. And he actually ended up signing um, with Disney for over, you know, $100,000 a year to design oh, for wow. them because he could finish. So it didn't decrease his who he was. It helped him be who he was when his brain works right. And I love your story because if, if we just look at what's happened to you and your ability to make a difference in the world after you started optimizing or biohacking your brain, and we have your brain, right? 13 years apart. Oh, we yeah. have oh, the yeah. disaster initially. And then later when it was so much healthier, well, what's the benefit of that? There's a huge benefit to your love life, to your family life, to your business, 
and then your ability to make an impact in the world. And I'm certain if we hadn't figured out um, what the problem was and optimized it, you would not love your life nearly as much as you do today. You know, it, it actually takes a huge amount of, of effort uh, to go through and do anything to improve yourself, whether it's to improve your health or to improve your behavior patterns after you get your health there. And I was pretty much tapped out where, where like I don't have any energy left after working and after uh, you know going to school full time at the same time. How am I going to improve? And so it turns out if you if you do the the stuff that you talk about um, in the end of mental illness and in your other books, you do that first. The dividend that it pays right away is more energy, <laughs> and then that more energy is what you use to say, oh, I just got. 10% more energy today, I'm going to apply that towards getting even more energy or towards fixing this other part of my brain or not eating the French fries or what, whatever the thing is that was next on your list. And, and so what I found over the course of really just about a year um, of this was the amount of, of pushing that I had to do to get anything done went down dramatically. And the more uh, brain hacking I've done, the better my mitochondria fired, the more you know, neurofeedback, the more the other meditation, breathing, going to bed, all that stuff. The more of that that I do, the less struggle I experience on a daily basis. And, and I feel like when you're all the way on the end of the spectrum towards what we now call mental illness, um, the amount of struggle to put one foot in front of the other, to, you know, to tie your shoelaces, to, to get to work in the morning, it's like a 10 out of 10 struggle. And people who are not there and have never been there have no empathy they don't believe you. They think you look healthy. And, and you're like, I got nothing left. Like I'm showing up and that's all I've got because like you said, the accelerator's to the floor and I'm slowing down. Um, what, what would your advice be for someone who maybe is about to order your book um, and just is in that place where I feel like I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. I want to do better, but I'm, I'm drained. What is the first thing that they should do? They should learn about their brain. Okay. And... Okay. So I think of brain health really simply. It's three things. Care about it. Nobody cares about their brain. I live in Newport Beach, California. We have more plastic surgeons than almost anywhere in the world. And we <laughs> care more about our faces, our boobs, our bellies, and our butts. By the way, you're looking great. Thank you. <laughs> we do our brain. Um, it's, it starts with loving your brain. And in 1991, when I first started looking at the brain... I didn't care about my brain. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to say that. I'm a double board certified psychiatrist. I was the top neuroscience student in medical school. And <laughs> I don't know about my brain and I don't care. I'm sleeping four hours a night thinking I'm special when I realize now that was just sort of dumb. I'm overweight. I'm chronically stressed. I'm eating bad food. I mean, I just have no care and then I scanned my mom, who was 60, and she had a beautiful brain. And I scanned myself at 37. It was terrible. And I'm like, why is it terrible? Well, I played football in high school. And I had meningitis twice as a young soldier. And I had been exposed to environmental toxins when I was in the Army. And, and I, I just didn't care. So the first thing is brain envy. Freud was wrong. <laughs> Penis envy is not the cause of anybody's problems. I've not seen it once in 40 years being a psychiatrist. You got to care about your brain. And then you want to learn to avoid things that hurt it. 
and you just have to know the list. And it's not hard, right? If we put up 20 things and I'm going, help your brain, hurt your brain, most people would get them right, except when I put up orange juice. They would put that in the good category when right. in fact that should be in the bad category because it's way Probably too much. Probably diet sure. soda too. That, diet soda would yeah. be in the bad category. Yeah. Um, so care about it, avoid things that hurt it, and then do things to help it. And you just have to know what's the list. And in the book, actually a bulk of this book is if you want to keep your brain healthy or rescue it if it's headed to the dark place, you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And we know what they are. There's a mnemonic called bright minds. Um, so B is for blood flow. Low blood flow is the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease and um it's so know which of those risk factors you have, like head trauma is the H, diabetes is the D, S is the sleep. And it's really a functional medicine approach to brain health. And when you get your brain right, you feel better. And I, I love this book so much because I dedicated it to my two nieces that actually live with me. They... Um, are genetically loaded for mental illness, family history of suicide, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, borderline personality disorder, wow, incarceration, wow. addiction. I mean, it's, they're loaded. But you know, genes only load the gun. It's what happens to us that pulls the trigger. And unfortunately, they were raised in chaos with parents who struggled with addictions, depression, domestic violence. And about four years ago, Child Protective Service took them out of their house. The kids are still traumatized when the police came and took them and put them in foster care where yet more traumas occurred. So we would agree that these children are at very high risk for mental illness. And the whole goal behind the end of mental illness is how do I end it in them and wow. in their babies and grandbabies. And, and I have to tell you, they're 10 and 15. They're both straight A students. Um, they both get awards at school. They're social. Um, they're awesome. They're no longer addicted to hot Cheetos. So our first grocery store trip was <laughs> not a lot of fun for them. Um, and they love their brains. But, but how do you end it? You end it by getting serious about brain health, not by me going, oh, you have PTSD, you have depression. Yes, I understand it. Here's a handful of pills every morning to take. It's like, no, no, no. Let's get your brain right. And when I scan the older one, she had severe low activity. It sort of rivaled your brain with really low blood flow. <laughs> and I was really unhappy, you know, was that, mm -hmm. you know, did her mom drink when she was pregnant? Did she live in a mold-filled house? What was it? But one of the first strategies was to put her in a hyperbaric chamber to increase blood flow to her mm -hmm. brain. And it made just a big positive difference for her. It, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, I, I've had several people on talking about hyperbarics. There's a hyperbaric chamber behind me. Um, it's probably blurred out on, on YouTube, but it's a little off camera. Uh, but uh, I bought that because you said, hey, Dave, you should do this. And 
Uh, yeah, it, it absolutely works. And yeah, my, I had low blood flow, uh, many standard deviations lower than normal and lots of holes in my brain. And in fact, you said, if I didn't know this was you, I would think this was the brain of uh, of a someone on drugs living under a bridge uh, kind of a thing, just from the toxins from from mold that I was living in. And and so I, I can feel for your niece uh, because like it it's a dark, weird place when, when your brain doesn't do that. And your emotional volatility is higher. Your decision making is off, uh, and you know it at some level. But on the other level, it's invisible. So you just feel like everyone around you is a jerk. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've, I definitely do hyperbaric, especially after I fly. And, it, and I've actually bought a hyperbaric chamber uh, for a, another family member who had a lot of brain injuries. And uh, it, it's one of those things where I just told him, "Look, use it till you're well, and then and then find a friend who really needs it, and like it'll, we'll just pass that one around." <laughs> <laughs> because it's such a, a profound thing. So a lot of people listening are saying, I can't do this. Look, if you have brain injuries, you have low blood flow, you go see Dr. Amen, one of his clinics. Uh, you actually can buy a hyperbaric chamber for a few thousand dollars, use it until you're done, and then sell it for most of what you paid for it. Or you can go to one of the clinics that has them around the country and you can do hyperbaric on a you know, pay-per-use basis. But I find that it is more accessible than you think, and and it it's it's a real thing. And, and yes, I go in there and I listen to. I would like to listen to a podcast. I actually usually listen to an audio book. Um, lay there for an hour, uh, and you know, soak my brain in oxygen, and and it's actually a good return on time. So thank you for encouraging me to buy one of those because it it does make a difference. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. I published a study on soldiers who had blast injuries from Iraq and Afghanistan. 40 sessions we did before and after scans, and they were better. But what was more important was their mood was better, their sleep was better, their cognitive function was better. And is that a mental illness or is it a brain health issue? And I would argue it's a brain health issue. Get your brain right and your mind tends to be better. And, you know, imagine if I hadn't looked at Alizé, um, the older one, and she just spent all of her time struggling. Given her family history, she'd have, she'd have been in therapy forever and people would have great empathy for her. But she'd just talk about the trauma over and over and over again as opposed to fixing her brain. So she has to talk about the trauma once, make sense out of it, and then begin to move forward in her life. 
so it, it's that same thing, you know. Oh, you have you're fat, therefore you're lazy. Let's treat that. Versus, oh, you're traumatized, so let's just kind of wallow in the trauma, or you know, let's deal with the blood flow and other things like that. So, I, I think it's important, but also a lot of people listening, they're not in a position. They either don't live near one of your clinics, uh, or they just don't have the money to go do a, a spec scan. And one of the things that that I find really valuable in your work is uh, you actually have in your new book, The End of Mental Illness, you talk about knowing your brain type even if you never get scanned, which is the ultimate gift of people saying, look, given all the scans I've done, everything I know, I can probably tell you what the results are going to be. Here's how to do it. So tell me about the brain types that you've, you've categorized and what's your thought process behind telling someone, here's what's probably going on even if you don't have the data. Well, a long time ago, I realized not everybody can get a scan. Either they're yeah. not near one of the clinics or they can't afford it. Um, and But we've done, with QEEG and SPECT, 170,000 scans. So we've learned a lot. And so based on thousands of scans, I developed questionnaires to help people predict what their brain might look like if they came and got scanned. Yeah. And, you know, again, is, is it... Are you the spontaneous person where you tend to have sleepy frontal lobes? Are you the persistent person where your frontal lobes tend to work too hard and you have trouble letting go of negative thoughts? Are you the sensitive person, a lot of therapists are, or the cautious person where your basal ganglia and amygdala might be working too hard? So know your type and then here are some of the supplements or exercises that might help you. So this book is actually very practical. You will know your brain type. Mm -hmm. You'll also know which of the 11 risk factors you have, and you can start attacking them as soon as possible. You just have to know what they are. Like there's a whole chapter in the book on know your important health numbers. Peter Drucker said, you can't change what you don't measure. And mm -hmm. so knowing your blood pressure, your BMI, your C-reactive protein, your omega-3 index, your vitamin D level, your hormone levels, it's just critical up front to know, well, what are my important health numbers? And then, well, what can I do to make them better? Yeah. As soon as someone knows they have low vitamin D, they'll either get more sun or take a supplement for the rest of their life because they'll know, oh, this is a bad thing and I need to take care of that. And then I talk about the neuroscience about why vitamin D or testosterone or inflammatory markers are important to brain health. And the benefit of the end of mental illness is your body gets better. I'm one of my favorite patients. I've been seeing him for about three months now. He's already lost 35 pounds. And I'm just wow. so proud of him because he's doing the right thing for his brain. And weight loss wasn't the point, although diabetes, where your blood sugar and your weight are higher than they should be, they shrink your brain. Um, this week, past weekend, I looked at 20,000 patients and I actually looked at, are you healthy weight, overweight, obese, morbidly obese for every area of the brain? I looked at 127 areas of the brain. There's a linear correlation to weight. As your weight wow. goes up, the function in every area of your brain 
goes down. And, and it's not just willpower. What we're learning is that environmental toxins are damaging your pancreas, making it hard to regulate insulin and your appetite. And so your toxic load is often driving the obesity epidemic in this country. So that's not a willpower issue. It's a toxin issue that no one is talking about. It's really interesting because toxin levels vary on a daily basis. And, and people who don't believe what you're saying, uh, if you've ever been hung over, uh, uh, you, you know how your brain feels and it doesn't work the same. So we have some pretty clear evidence uh, when you got a little bit of extra toxin. But um, a couple of weeks ago, I got pneumonia. And I have a history. I've had pneumonia several times. I lived in houses growing up with toxic mold. So that, that's an area where, where I'm not as strong as I'd like to be. Um, and I you know, stayed out at a party, got super cold, and was in an over-air-conditioned hotel for a couple of days and uh, woke up with you know pneumonia, can't get out of bed kind of stuff. And I recovered stupidly fast, as in I was, I was fine within five days. You know, I still have a little bit of a cough, but all of the exhaustion that normally would take you down for about three weeks um, just didn't happen because I'm, I'm resilient. But all the stuff I did during that week and even most of the week after, I have almost no memory of it. Like I know I had meetings. Uh, I, I know I actually got a lot of stuff done. I know I recorded a podcast, but I, I look in there for the parts of my brain responsible memory. I got nothing. I have to look it up in a notepad. It, it's a complete blank slate. And uh, that's a, a function of toxins. You know, Bacteria make toxins, lipopolysaccharides, that get into circulation, and then you get inflammation and your brain doesn't work. And I'm, I'm kind of just blown away at, at even, even if you're, okay, I can, I can put one foot in front of the other, but did you store what you did? I didn't in that case. What do you think about the daily variability of toxins or the, these brief illness types of things and what they're actually doing to people's performance? Well, you wonder what's happening in your microbiome in your gut that causes your immune system oh, yeah. not to be serving you, but, but maybe to be hurting you. The, the one part about toxins people don't talk about that I actually didn't know about until I read, until I wrote my book, Memory Rescue, was all the toxins we purposefully put on our bodies. Yeah. So um, I read this great book, The, the Toxin Solution. And I don't know if you've ever interviewed Joe Pizzorno. He's great, but I love that I, book. I, I like his stuff. I haven't interviewed him though, but... Uh, all right, no, 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 sorry. Of course I, I've interviewed uh, Pizzorno. Actually, twice. Sorry, I was thinking of a, a different... Uh, anyway, yes, I have. But so I got this app, Think Dirty, and mm -hmm. I started scanning my shampoo, my body wash, my shaving cream, and I literally threw out 70% of my bathroom because yeah. putting um, aluminum on your body on a regular basis, aluminum is a known neurotoxin, using parabens and phthalates that are hormone disruptors. I'm 65. Aging disrupts your hormones all by itself. I don't need to help that. Um, and so I think that really can account for some of the variability. 60% of the lipstick sold in the United States has lead in it. So I think of it as the kiss of death. Um, so we have to be very thoughtful about the food we eat 
the products we put on our body. Did you see the new study out on drinking water that it actually has something in it, toxins, that once they get in your body, they actually never leave? Um, yeah. And we just have to be so cautious, so careful. It's actually why I don't really want to go to China when I get invited because of the air pollution that's there. You don't want to breathe stuff that you can't get rid of. So always supporting the four organs of detoxification, your kidneys drink more water, your gut eat more fiber, your liver stop drinking alcohol, eat brassicas, uh, which are detoxifying vegetables like cauliflower and kale and Brussels sprouts, and then saunas. I've become a huge fan of taking um, infrared saunas because people who take the most saunas have the lowest risk of Alzheimer's disease. And it's not just sweating. It's what the heat shock proteins tend to do to enhance the immune system. It, it's really interesting. Uh, recent podcast that I had, uh, we went through... Uh, both what, what saunas do for heat shock protein, but also for something called hypoxia or hypoxic inducible factor one alpha, HIF one alpha. And it turns out sauna leads to heat shock protein, leads to HIF. And this causes a response where you're basically grow healthier and better blood flow. So there's a secondary effect. And some of the training that I do, uh, I do brief exposures of hypoxia where I don't get enough oxygen which causes a, a very positive response in these, these hormones. And that's part of how I've been able to repair my brain. So there's times when I'm in excess oxygen and hyperbaric, and there's brief periods, I'm talking one minute periods, uh, where I'm saying, oh, my brain didn't have enough oxygen, which causes it to open up to accept more when I add it back in. So playing around with those is important. And I put saunas uh, in uh, my last anti-aging book in Superhuman, because the data's in. If you're going to live to 100 years, you're going to accumulate a bunch of crap. And if you don't let it go, of course, you're going to get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or MS or you know early senile cognitive dementia and all the things, because how else would you let them go? If you just expect that you're going to, you're going to naturally eliminate all the toxins that you put into you that are not toxins from Mother Nature, how are the onboard Mother Nature systems going to compensate? They're not, unless you actively do it. And so I like it that T is in bright minds, your analogy, T is for toxins. And you just say, look, you got to do this, but you don't have to be afraid of them either. And, and I think that's the, the flip side. Like, you know, you and I don't want don't to be exposed to air pollution in China. Uh, neither one of us is going to smear, you know, aluminum uh, on our armpits uh, as a way to, you know, enhance our brain, stay healthy or smell good. But I also feel like you're, you're pragmatic enough to say, you know, if I'm really, really dehydrated and I'm at a restaurant and there's no way to get bottled water, am I going to drink a half a glass of tap water that might be filtered poorly? I, I bet you probably would, but and you wouldn't spend three days thinking about it and you know taking charcoal pills. How paranoid? <laughs> well, I, I'd go with the sparkling water. I, I do too. That's what I always do. But, but what, what level of paranoia is mandatory? It's, it's, it's being conscious and then knowing the risks. So, for example, last year, Tana, who you've met, who loves yeah. you, um, had a hysterectomy. And for like six months, she's like, I'm not right. And we do so many of the things right. And so she got another scan. I have three of her scans. And she clearly had a toxic response to the anesthesia. 
Children mm-hmm. who have anesthesia have a higher incidence of learning problems and ADD. Adults who have anesthesia have a higher incidence of dementia, especially people who have artery um, surgery or any kind of heart surgery. But she didn't have heart surgery, but it clearly damaged her brain, which is when I bought a hyperbaric chamber for home. So she goes in it, my niece goes in it. It, it turns out if you have the, the not the tiniest model, you can actually fit two people who like each other in there at the same time. So um, there's been times when Lana and I will cram ourselves in there at the same time and watch a movie on an iPad uh, with you know, one earbud in each ear. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, just goes, hey, we got some oxytocin here. You know, we're sort of cuddling and we're getting oxygen and we're uh, we're watching a movie. Like, like, how do you get higher ROI in an hour at a time? So, yeah, I, I love it. And hyperbaric was what you chose to do for the, uh, as a response to the damage from, I'm guessing it was propanofol that, that caused the problem or is it just general anesthesia? It was general oh. anesthesia. Um, you know, the short one, short ones, uh, the propofol you get from, oh, propofol, uh, yeah. you know, dental procedures and things like that. I've not seen that cause damage, but I have okay. seen general anesthesia. My assistant, Karen, who I love, um, she found out she had an aortic aneurysm and it was an eight hour surgery. And when Ooh. she came back, she wasn't the same. I mean, this was my disciplined on time, everything got done assistant. And all of a sudden those things aren't happening. And my initial response was to be irritated. But then, you know, the loving doctor part of me went, something happened. And when we scanned her, I had her big fat brain before she had general anesthesia and then I had it afterwards and it was clearly hurt. And so it's like, okay, you need to be in the chamber. You need to take these supplements. We need to be serious about repairing the damage from your brain. And and nobody knows that because anesthesiologists never tell you, even though if you go on PubMed gov and look at the research, there's a food fight going on in the anesthesia literature about damage, cognitive impairment from general anesthesia. Get wow. your brain right, your mind will follow. Are there a lot of anesthesiologists who have you on their dartboards? <laughs> there's a lot of people who have me on their dartboards. I just try not to pay attention. <laughs> To them. <laughs> do, do you think there's a way to do safe anesthesia that supports our brains? Because sometimes you need to go under. And I, I've often wondered, I, I know about the 5% of people who get micro strokes from a lot of, uh, from general anesthesia. A lot of people are now using anesthesia drugs, but they aren't intubating you and saying, oh, it's not anesthesia, but it really is. Uh, and I, I mean, I have a couple really good friends. One's a medical doctor with decades of experience, went under for a procedure and came up. Same thing. I'm not myself again. I, you know, something's wrong. And uh, I mean, is, is, there, is there a safe way that you know of to do this? Have you seen data? Do, I mean, do you know? No, the safest thing to do is go into the surgery with a lot of reserve. And okay. so okay. if we think of, you know, back to your scan, you had no reserve. And even the pneumonia you had means we still have to work on building your reserve because if you can't yeah, remember what happened to that. Mm-hmm. So if you need anesthesia or I need general anesthesia, I mean, sometimes you got to have it, right? Or it'll cost yeah, you your life. So it's like, don't not do it. But no, you might have to do some repair things when you get out and you always want to go in 
to a procedure as healthy as you can because those are the people that come out and survive and even thrive afterwards. I have a friend, uh, one of my close friends who I love. He went to Hawaii and and he was re- in really great shape, but he's a little crazy and he dove into a pool that had this... Um, leptospirosis, which is an infectious agent. And when he got to work, he had a high fever and he barely made it to the hospital. And then he was unconscious and was actually in a coma for a couple of days. And I thought he was going to die, but he ended up surviving and thriving because he went into that health crisis with muscle on his body. Think of muscle as protein reserve. Mm -hmm. And he was really healthy, which is the only way he survived. And so you go into those. So that's why you can't wait to get healthy until you're sick. A lot of people go, well, when I start to lose my memory, I'll get serious about brain health. You don't want to have that thought. You want to go... Today is the day. Today is the day I love myself and I'm going to do the right things. And if you go into general anesthesia and you come out and you're not the same, hyperbaric oxygen, going after all the bright minds risk factors, making sure your omega-3 fatty acid levels are good. You know, we talked about know your important numbers. Um, you know, I did the big NFL study when the NFL was yeah. lying, they had a problem. And 80% of my brain damaged players get better in as little as two months <laughs> when we put them on a rehabilitation program. So I know the brain can heal. It, it's just, it's not that hard. 80% in two months. And I, I look at how just backwards I was. So I, by the time I'm 23, I've had three knee surgeries and I'm fat. And I said, I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to fix it. So I went to the gym six days a week, an hour and a half a day. And I went on this low fat, you know, low calorie diet. And I'm like, I'm all in and I don't care. And 18 months later, I'm still fat. Uh, but I, at least I'm, I'm muscled under my fat. Um, but I'm probably worse off health wise on many things because I'm, you know, I'm tired and you know, I, I still wasn't getting the right nutrients and my brain blood flow was jacked and I still had toxins and all these things. Um, if I'd have known what I know now, instead of doing all that garbage, I would have said, oh, I am going to fix my brain. And I'm going to do at least most of the things on this list. And like, it, it doesn't matter. You have to do all of them. And it's the same perspective in superhuman. Like, pick a few. It, it doesn't matter. So you, you missed your hyperbaric. You only did 20 sessions, not 40, but you took your omega-3s and you got better. Like, hallelujah, right? But you're just going to pick some things. And then two months later, three months later, everything is easier because your brain works. And, and that isn't what happens when you put your New Year's resolution, I'm gonna you know, get abs or whatever. Those are dumb resolutions. The, the real win is, uh, is the brain. And if you can do it in two months or three months, it's, uh, it's, a, really, uh, it's a really powerful situation. Uh, so um, I, just, I have to encourage people listening to this to do exactly what you said. And one thing that comes up over and over when I talk with uh, you know the bulletproof community, uh, people at the conference, just people on on Instagram, it doesn't really matter where. Um, like Dave, what about uh, the these things like antidepressants and these drugs, anti seizure medications, and things like this? So the the third part of your book, 
the end of at the end of mental illness is really uh, about you know mind meds versus nutraceuticals. And, and so you shifted. I mean, I've been watching your career for twenty five years, and the very first edition of Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. So like you have this brain, like take these drugs. And when I look at your work now, after you have you know, 170,000 brain scans, your books are a little different. Like, oh, you have this brain? Breathe this way, exercise this way, sleep this way, take these nutraceuticals. Oh, and you might need some drugs. Uh, so you flipped it on its head. But tell me where you are now on the mind meds versus nutraceuticals angle. So I'm a classically trained psychiatrist. I was trained in medication and psychotherapy. And I've always been a bit out of the box. I'm a huge fan of biofeedback and neurofeedback. I've been a fan of since the 80s. Um, but when I started looking at the brain, I'm like, uh, some of the meds are toxic for brain function. And once you start them, you can't stop them. So I have a lot of experience. I have decades of experience with psychiatric medications. And now I have decades of experience with nutraceuticals. And a lot of doctors, one of my patients said this recently. No, we were actually interviewing a doctor to come work with us. And she goes, oh, there's no science behind supplements. So end the interview because... In that chapter, Mind Meds versus Nutraceuticals, there's 286 scientific references. There's a <laughs> lot of science. And I have, so what has A-level scientific evidence for depression, for anxiety, for ADHD, for addictions, for insomnia? And I go, before you try medication, what are the 10 things for depression you should do first, including um, how to not believe every stupid thing you think, to omega-3 fatty acids, saffron, SAMI, um, curcumins of all things because it decreases inflammation mm -hmm. and inflammation is one of the drivers of depression. So is that a mental illness or a brain health issue? It's a brain health issue. And I'm not opposed to medicine. I am vehemently opposed to how medication is prescribed now in the United States. 85% of psychiatric drugs are prescribed by non-psychiatric physicians in seven-minute office visits based on symptom clusters with no biological information. It's wrong. And psychiatrists, you know, when I trained, I actually got to take care of my patients. I'd do the therapy, I'd do their medication, I'd have an hour, two hours a week with them. And it switched in the early 90s when managed care took over medicine to the 15-minute med check, which is just a disaster because the psychiatrist, they don't really have time to have a relationship and understand the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual aspects of their patients. So I think the seeds for sort of an integrative approach were in me when I was a young psychiatrist. They have blossomed um, in the end of mental illness, I think really shows where I'm at now, which is first do no harm, use the least toxic, most effective treatments. And I'm not worried just about getting you less depressed. I want to get your brain and your body healthy. You know, I, I really appreciate the, uh, just the, the humility it takes uh, to do that, to, to sit down and say, okay, I've trained in this stuff. I started out this way and to evolve your, uh, your take on things like that. Uh, and, and just watching your evolution, uh, it, you've always been 
you know, willing to go out there and say, I, I want to look at stuff that no one looks at. Uh, and you've, you've taken some hits for that uh, and, and won in the end. <laughs> but uh, I, I do think it, it takes a certain kind of a very dedicated uh, medical mind to, to, to navigate it the way you have and to just say what you said right there, you know, which is, all right, let's fix the body, fix the brain, and you know, then, then look at what's going on. So I, I, I think you, you write it well in the book. And when people say, um, and I think there's a lot less people now than there were 10 years ago, I mean, people saying, oh, you, know, you should take you know, these antidepressants like candy and you know, take these other things. But you put 287 references in there. So, so the, the skeptics can, can kind of choke on those uh, before they choke on their handful of pharmaceuticals. Uh, but they're probably not getting the results they want. In fact, the reason they're probably such angry skeptics might be the handful of pharmaceuticals that they're taking. Uh, there, there's that rigidity that can come from either being over-medicated or having a broken brain. Uh, talk to me about rigidity, the, the people who are, are stuck and just don't don't consider new options. They, they, they're kind of pinned into a box. What's going on there? Is that biological or is that more mental? It's both, uh, that there's a biology to it. But at the same time, change is hard. You know, once your brain learns how to do something, it it just wants to do that over and over again. Even if it doesn't want to do it, it will do it. That's how bad habits happen. And when you tell 40,000 psychiatrists they're doing it wrong, they generally don't say thank you. And um, there was a great book in, I think it was 1962, the structure of scientific revolution. It's how do things change in science? And they and I talk about this in the book, and they go through this five-part um, process where first, somebody notices the discrepancy that this isn't working. You have all the symptoms of ADHD or depression. I put you on Ritalin or I put you on Prozac, and all of a sudden you're suicidal. So that's a discrepancy. You have the symptoms. I give you the standard treatment, and now I make you worse. So I noticed that. Mm -hmm. And then you come up with a new way of thinking, and it's immediately rejected. And the status quo, they'll change, you know, and we've had DSM-3 and 4 and 5 now, and they'll change it a little bit, but they really don't change the paradigm because they're protecting the old guard as much as they can. And ultimately, and we're between stages four and five right now, where ultimately they're going to accept imaging and natural ways to heal the brain is self-evident. And I'm excited. That's why I take care of myself. Uh, that's why I sleep seven or eight hours a night. I'm not overweight. I eat well because I want to outlive these people to see a new <laughs> paradigm. Um, yeah. And the fact that you got well and now you're creating products and programs to optimize people's brains you, you're the future. And, you know, whatever I can do to be supportive of that, it just makes me so happy to, you know, try to support the revolutionaries uh, making a difference and changing our society. Well, well, Daniel, one of the, in fact, the, the New Year's resolution that I asked uh, Bulletproof followers uh, to make uh, was not to, you know, drink your Bulletproof coffee every morning. I figure most of them are already doing that. Um, but what what I said was, make a friend who is 25 years older or younger than you. And 
the reason for that is that if you can learn from your elders, the people who have a couple decades more experience than you, uh, it's going to be the most important thing you can do to avoid mistakes. And if you have a couple more decades and people around you and you spend time with someone younger, they're, uh, they're going to lend their energy to you and you're actually going to do something that makes you live longer, which is when you help another person, it is really good for your brain. So it's one of those things where both people win. So you know, here we are. You know, you're you've got about 20, uh, 20 or so years more experience than I do. So hey, I get to learn from you. You know, I, I'm in in college reading your book, going, oh my god, I can fix my brain. This is incredible. Uh, and applying those things and all the other stuff I, I've learned from you know seven hundred people uh, I've interviewed right now. <laughs> so thanks, thanks for sharing it. Thanks for being able to spend an hour uh, on a conversation that I wanted to have anyway. And the fact that a few hundred thousand people get to listen in is an added bonus. And and many of them are going to learn from you. And some of them are younger and some of them are older, but uh, you're, you're sharing your knowledge in a way that's very meaningful. And you've done it for, for 20 plus years, uh, which also requires a brain that works and has resilience and uh, uh, stamina. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy you're doing it. And, and the more you write, the clearer and more more actionable and just more useful uh, and easier your work is the more accessible it becomes uh, because well you've had practice <laughs> at explaining the problems and putting it in frameworks and telling people you don't have to get a scan but if you can it's a good idea uh, so i i wish that i'd had you know the end of mental illness when i was 20 uh, instead of you know uh, change your brain change your life when i was 25 but man i'm really happy that i had it and i look into what I look forward to what book you'll be writing when you're 85 and it'll probably be six words and people will read it and they'll be completely cured. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. It's always a joy to be with you and to watch how your impact on the world just continues to grow. That just, it makes me happy. Well, it's, uh, it's there for the same reason that you're there, which is, uh, it is to help people make a difference and make sure people don't have to deal with all the stuff uh, that certainly I dealt with. Your book website is endofmentalillness.com for the new book. And of course, people who Google you and all, they're going to find it, you at Amen Clinics and all. But uh, you've, you're giving away just huge amounts of free stuff, like in, information and knowledge on endofmentalillness.com uh, for uh, this book launch. And so I, I would support you on that. And you're listening to this, like, Dave, you, you interview a lot of authors. I'm like, like, here's the deal. An author like Daniel Amen spends at least 2,000 hours writing a book of this caliber and sometimes a lot more. And if you take all the research that went into it, it might actually be closer to 10,000 hours, but not all those hours were just on the book. Uh, so you, you do all this stuff. And then you read the book and it takes you four or eight hours to read it. It's the highest ROI activity you can do. So you get the audiobook, you read the book, and you're saying, oh, this podcast is worth an hour of my time. I promise you that the audiobook on this is going to be worth at least four or five, however long it is, a podcast's worth of content. It is concentrated, distilled, important stuff. And that's why I encourage you to read, listen to things like that. And I work to bring you the best I can. I think this is a great interview. Uh, but if you really want to get the essence of what Dr. Amon's talking about, it, get the book. It's worth it. And as always, when you enjoy a book, when you get something out of it, when you get more out of it than you put into it, leave a review. Uh, just let him know. Uh, it really makes a difference. 
so pick up the end of mental illness, get all the free stuff he's, he's giving you. Um, he's a dear friend and a, a human whose work has profoundly influenced how I show up in the world, what I do, and how I'm able to do what I do. So unless your life is perfect, read the end of mental illness. Even if you don't have mental illness, there's room for improvement, and that's what it's all about. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.